0: Hello, humans. This week, we are venturing into a different land of woo the woo of cults, specifically the Unification Church, whose members are called Unificationists or Moonies. If you don't know about this cult, don't worry. My guests, Jen Kiaba and Lisa Cohn, will give you an incredible overview. And why are they the best ones to give you that recap? because they both escaped this cult. The Unification Church was officially founded in 1954 in South Korea by Sun Myung Moon, a Korean religious leader and self-appointed messiah. He considered himself the second coming of Christ, but not Jesus himself, and he said that he was anointed to fulfill Jesus' unfinished mission. Although Jen and Lisa had different paths within this cult, Their parents were married in 1982, along with over 2,000 other couples. At the same time, like all together, Moon was known for these mass weddings. Okay, side note, quick story. My mom was a young mom. She got pregnant with me when she was 19, after leaving her parents' Christian evangelical grip. And when I was a baby, she was in the process of spiritually redefining herself. In that process she came across none other than the Unification Church, and she was intrigued. The Moonies were warm and caring toward her, and she really needed that at the time, so she kept going back. They love-bombed her, which Jen and Lisa will talk more about, for a couple of months, and then eventually they started asking her to join, 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 join. That's when my mom's intuition kicked in and she stopped going to the church and moved on to the next phase of her woo journey. So I think technically, for the tiniest moment, I was a Mooney, sort of. Not really, but I could have been. I often think, what would my life be like if my mom had stayed? Well, Jen and Lisa actually have that answer. In part one of this two-part interview... The three of us discuss Moon and his wives, what it's like to escape this complex and abusive cult, and so much more. Jen Kiaba is an artist and educator who was born in the Unification Church. After escaping a forced arranged marriage, she fought her way out in her early 20s and went on to earn her BA in art history at Bard College. As an artist, she uses photography to explore the failure of faith and the resulting loss of identity that occurs. She also writes and speaks about art, healing, and their intersection. Lisa Cohn is a New Yorker who owns a leadership consulting and executive coaching firm and spends much of her time speaking, writing, teaching, and presenting her ideas and approaches to life and business. She's also the author of To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence, which is her story about untangling herself from the challenges and complexities of being involved with the Unification Church. I'll let them tell you the rest. These are stories of survival and resilience, and it was such an honor to speak with these women. I want to put out a warning here for anyone who has been in a deeply traumatic and or cultic or religious abusive situation. We do discuss some topics that may be triggering. So if you're feeling safe and ready, let's get into the Moonies with Jen Kiaba and Lisa Cohn.
1: Hello, my name is Lisa, Lisa Cohn. The way I describe my childhood is the best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden were at my mother's wedding. Because my mom got married on July 1st, 1982 with 2,074 other couples. And Jen will tell you more about that. And the best cocaine I ever had was from my father's friend, the judge. And Ben is laughing. I can see that. So I'm a a second gen of the Unification Church. I grew up as a Mooney. I am what's now referred to as a Jacob's child. My mom joined when I was 10. So I was born outside of the church. And my mom joined. My brother and I joined. My father never joined. So I was a practicing member of the church. He was my Messiah. That was my life but I lived with my dad in New York City's East Village in the 1970s in a life of sex, drugs, and squalor as I define it. So I do have a very interesting cult and then outside of the cult, weird life background that not everybody gets to claim.
0: Wow. That's a fascinating back and forth that you had to do.
1: (laughs) You know, at some point, my brother is Rob, Robbie, and at some point we're like, we tried to Think about how it must have been because we literally would go to the church for the weekends and then back to my dad Monday through Friday and then up to the church Friday night. And it must have been, I mean, I, no wonder I compartmentalize and disassociate and stuff. I must have just had to shut down so much to go back and forth because I couldn't let anyone know that I lived with Satan, right? When I lived with Satan during the week, I, you know, had to follow the Messiah despite what was going on around me. So it, it was a, it was a mine blank just put it lightly yeah you
0: can say mind it was a mind fuck thank <laughs> you I we love have, to say mindfuck. yeah we have a little e on our show so feel free to let the fucks fly <laughs> well right, that's, jen. <laughs> that sounds fascinating yes jen take it away all right. Well,
2: I am Jen Kiaba. I am an artist who was born and raised in the Unification Church. So unlike Lisa, I was called a blessed child instead of a Jacob's child. And I think that that language did exist when you were growing up in the church with well, the blessed child part, right? Yeah, she's mm-hmm. nodding. So my parents were matched in 1979 by Reverend Moon in the hotel ballroom Of the new yorker and then they were married across the street several years later in 1982 in the same mass wedding that lisa's mother got married in and so i am the oldest of five children and my story you know the long and short of it is that up until about five years old i grew up in the washington dc area Well, we moved around quite a bit before that, but some of my formative memories were in the Washington, D.C. area, which was one of the larger pockets of the Unification Church. And then we moved away. And so I sort of had a similar experience as Lisa, not that I had like Satan during the week and church during the weekends, (laughs) but that I had to deal with public school. That was the evil outside world. And so I had this secret identity. I couldn't tell anybody that I was a blessed child. And then on weekends, Especially like on holy days, you know, we would trek up to Washington, D.C., and that started happening less and less as I got older until about 12. And then I moved to Arizona and was in more of a church community, but it was not like deeply populated or anything. And I started to see church members on a more regular basis, and I was like, This seems fucked up. Something seems weird. Like whatever my 12 year old (laughs) psyche could identify at the time, I was like, there's such a strange dissonance between what I'm seeing in public school with teachers and, and outside friends, which I wasn't supposed to have. And then the behavior in the church and I couldn't really make it work in my head. But as Lisa and I can tell you, there are all kinds of ways that the church indoctrinates you. So it wasn't until I was 20 and faced with a forced arranged marriage that I finally made the break in my brain and started to fight to leave. The day before my 22nd birthday is when I signed the paperwork to end my church marriage and free myself. It was my birthday present to myself.
0: Tell me again, the difference between a blessed child and a Jacob's child. And why is it called a Jacob's child?
1: So I'll do blessed child sins. and then Den can correct me because I'm not one. And honestly, when I left, there was no community. And as my brother says, I never left. I just slowly drifted. I still haven't told my mom I'm out and I've been out for like 40 years. Like she knows, I'm kidding, but like I my brother sat my mom down and said, That's it, I'm done. And I just kind of slowly faded away. Down. So those huge mass marriages that the Unification Church is known for, they're referred to as blessings. You are blessed in marriage by Moon and Haktahan, his wife. And that blessing removes original sin the original sin we all got when Adam and Eve fell from the Garden of Eden by having sex before they were supposed to. So those are blessings and those are blessed couples. And so then the blessed couples have children and they're blessed children, meaning they are born without original sin. So they're pure the way humans were first created by God 6,000 years ago. Jacob's child, the, the terminology didn't exist when I was in because there weren't, very many of us at all. There were very few kids in the church when I was there, and in fact, most of the blessed kids I meet now in our community, either I knew them when they were two, and I was seventeen, or I knew their parents. I'll see a last name, I'd be like, "Oh, are you so and so's kid?" And I get all excited, which I'm not supposed to do. So I don't know where Jacob and Esau. I don't know like Jacob was the better brother than Esau, but he didn't do things right, or it's got to be something around that. But basically it's a hierarchy. Moon's children were true children. They were children of the Messiah and they're true children because they're as true and holy and perfect and special as anybody could possibly, supposedly be. Then there's the blessed children. And then there was really sinful people like me were born full of original sin and
0: Satan. But you have the opportunity then once your mom gets married, even though you're born in original sin, you have the opportunity to like redeem yourself. I imagine. Not by my mom's marriage. So Moon and Jen knows this, but I'm just going to keep answering
1: for you, Jen. Moon would literally point from person to person to like that man and that woman. He could see their spiritual being. And so he could match them perfectly. And it would match perfect strangers. And they would have a couple of minutes to decide whether or not to marry the person. But my mom, he made stand up and said, she has two children from her first marriage. You know, they're sinful. They will always be sinful. Who's willing to take her on? And somebody volunteered to marry my mom, even though she was burdened with us. Oh my God. I love the dropped face. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the story I heard.
0: So, your stepdad was looked at as this kind of saintly guy for taking on these sinful children. And then Jen, do you want to follow up with that? I don't disagree with Lisa's definition at all. I have no idea
2: where Jacob's child came from. It's just language that I grew up with. And then later people started calling them like 1.5 generation too. Because like you have the first generation, which were our parents. Then the second generation, which were the kids that were born in. So like Lisa, in your introduction, you correctly identify yourself as a second generation member of the Unification Church. And that's how like a cult educator would identify you. But in the church caste system, you are not a second generation. Tisk 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 for <laughs> stealing that word, right? I'm sure that has something to do with Jacob's course and Moon like to talk about all these biblical figures. And so I'm sure if I search through the Unification Church archives, I might be able to find the origin of it. But maybe it has something to do with all of his wives and all of his children or something like that. So Moon liked to use the term engrafting, you know, sort of like a tree. There's the true olive tree, which is God's lineage, right? And we all have to engraft from Satan's lineage onto God's lineage, which is the true olive tree. It's like mixing a lot of metaphors, but maybe it's because. Because Jacob had multiple wives and therefore multiple children. It's sort of like the more ladies he had the sexy time with, the more children could be encrafted onto God's lineage. I don't know. I really don't know.
0: I love that. (laughs) The more ladies he could have sexy time with, because that's how I would probably explain it to someone. I'd be like, there was this guy and he was like, sexy time, all the ladies. Since we're on that for a hot second, does anybody (laughs) know how many ladies that Mooney actually did have sexy time with? There's a rumor that he
2: had sex with all of the wives of the original 36, 36 blessed couples. couples. So we're we're saying probably in the 40s plus at that
0: point. That seems low.
2: It's, it's, I know, I know. It's probably more for a cult yeah. leader,
0: but
1: it was a cult supposedly based on puritanical values and no extramarital uh-huh. set at the time I was in. Yeah. Not at the time when it was <laughs> Me started. too. But, but the thing is, Jen, when you're describing that, what hit me, right? Cause I'm not really a second gen. So we do have an online community that I found out about and you have to apply to be in, they're very careful, makes sense, whatever. And I remember thinking they probably won't let me in because I'm not actually a blessed child. Right. And so that just shows like how deeply I say, carved and pickled, like my brain was pickled and carved with these beliefs and they're so deeply ingrained to in me that 35 years later, I guess at that point, I thought I probably won't qualify to be part of this community because I am a Jacob's child and I didn't even know the word for it. I'm a 1.5 generation. I don't really count. I'm not one of them, right? I've been out for decades and it's still my initial reaction was they probably won't let me in because I'm not a blessed child.
0: Wow. Jen, when we talked on our preliminary call, I had told you that my mom was invited, lured in, so to speak, to the Mooney church when I was a baby and I talked with her after I call and she was like, they were so kind and so welcoming. And then all of a sudden they were just obsessed with more and more love bombing her. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, "Eh," and she got out of there, but I was a teeny tiny baby. So I would have been a Jacob's child then.
2: Yes. yes. So I wouldn't have been technically you're an honorary Jacob's child. As far as I'm concerned, Welcome to the club, your money oh, good. baby.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that would have been in like mid 80s. Would that be a time where there were a lot of churches that were kind of trying to fish for people?
2: Yeah. Yes. So again, my parents and Lisa's mother were Blessed, married in the mass wedding in 82, the criteria to be matched, if we rewind a little bit, was that you were supposed to have three spiritual children, which is basically recruits. And so there are any number of reasons why people would have wanted to recruit your mother. Obviously they believed that they had the truth, right? And to them, it was this beautiful thing that they were offering her, but there were also incentives too. Like the whole point of being in the church is like you were supposed to make ideal blessed families. There might've been people who were like, I need spiritual children. I need to recruit. Like you were supposed to get a certain number every year, I think. But then again, to qualify for this matching and blessing, you had to have three. So there was that. And there was also this monetary thing, like your mother would have been brought in, you would have been put into Jacob's house, which I don't know why. Why do we keep using Jacob's child, Jacob's house? But it was a nursery that your mother, Lisa, worked at. So Lisa's mother might have taken care of you. You would have been abandoned and your mother would have been sent off on like the mobile fundraising team or deployed on some other mission, which would have been to recruit people either in other countries or to curry political favor. So there were all of these different ways that the Unification Church was trying to build build itself up monetarily, again, with political influence, etc. Only you- thing I would correct of what you said, Jen, is that Fen would not be allowed in Jacob's
1: house. And it was a, a house that was called Jacob's house, which is nursery because she wasn't a blessed child. Only blessed as children. A, as a baby? Are you sure? I doubt it. Well, there weren't that many around, but they probably would have made you go live with someone else in your family.
0: Wow. wow.
1: That's sick. right. Like my mom refused to take us. There's a long history to how we ended up with my dad. We were living with my mom and my grandfather. And My mom said, I want to be more involved. What should I do? And my brother and I said, you should leave us and go move into the church to which she did and taking care of other people's kids for decades. My grandfather ended up in the psychiatric ward of the hospital. And they went to get my mother who said not my problem and refused to come home. And that's how we ended up with my dad because she didn't want us in a church center and church members told her to leave us alone and let someone else take care of us. So, so even
2: as an infant, she would not have been allowed because
0: of that not, because blood lineage thing. Child. Holy the blood shit, lineage. the caste be system is
1: deep. You would be Satan's lineage. And so she would have to find some other way to give you up. I hate
0: shape. to toot my own horn here, but I was a very cute baby. I don't think I have anything <laughs> to do with Satan. <laughs> Mothers who actually are like, nah, I'm going to go do all this other stuff and not take care of my freaking child. Lisa, how did that make you feel? Well, so at the
1: time I was proud. And at the time we were told how lucky we were to live without her and to pay indemnity. The church has this concept of indemnity where you suffer to pay for the sins of your ancestors and so that your descendants don't have to suffer. And I knew that if I ever missed her or I was sad that I was sinful because it was God's will that she should be there. So I shouldn't be selfish. So like we were literally taught that if we ever questioned anything, it was Satan inside us trying to win us back from God and like evil spirits inside us. So I knew that if I questioned, I knew that if I missed her, if I was ever angry, I wasn't angry because that would just make me even more sinful, right? So my brain is so held tight that I can't, I'm old, I'm 57, I'll be 58 this year. And my brain still is afraid to feel emotions and own things because it was so told not to. So at the time I never questioned, I couldn't cry. She was told never to cry in front of us. We were only lucky to not live with my mom and all of that. And now I'm still healing. Right. And literally, you know, my mom is very special. So she spent all these times taking care of other people's kids. To this day, I meet other kids, second gens, real second gens, blessed children who say, well, your mom loved me so much and took such good care of me. And I'm like, yeah, she did. And my mom used to call us up and say, I just talked to so-and-so, like if she had care for Jen, I just talked to Jen. She's so traumatized because her parents left her. It's so sad. And my brother and I'd be like, yeah, she is because my mother did it for God. To this day, she still feels she was led. She's been out since 96. So she was led into the church by some power and still said to me two Thanksgivings ago when we could have a Thanksgiving, said, I don't think I ever left you because you were always in my heart. I feel like I never left you. And I was like, let's be clear. She <laughs> <Jen. laughs> sat us down and said, what should I do? We said, you should leave. And you walked out and I never lived with you again. Let's be really clear. That's leaving. But she's like, but you're always in my heart. So I was always with you. I'm like, yeah, it's not the same thing. So it's
2: just such a mind fuck. It it's really such is. a
1: mind fuck. It's such a mind fuck, right? It really, really is. So yeah, I, I definitely over messed with my children. Absolutely. Because I was so abandoned by my mom, I have a almost twenty five year old and just her nineteen year old. I would say the good thing about my parents is the bar is so low that like if you don't leave <laughs> and you don't give them drugs, you're a great parent. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'm certain that I was, you know, terrified of abandoning them. I'm certain I over care for them in some ways, but I also gave them a lot. And I have said to other second gens, here's the deal. Generational trauma. They're going to have it. My kids have my scars. They have my issues. They just have it at a lesser level than I do. My kids know that like you have my shit, but uh, it absolutely affected how I raised my kids. My kids so much know that I love them. I never knew my parents loved me for obvious reasons.
0: Can you say now that you feel loved by your parents
1: at this age? To their ability? Yes. So my dad, I'm his primary caregiver. He's in a nursing home. He's a very, very old 78 year old. And (laughs) I know he loves me. He's still completely inappropriate. He still can't show it, but I do know that he loves me, but it's taken me decades to get there. My mom can be more limited. My dad never said anything nice, but always showed up. Mom always said, I love you, but always left. It's kind of this weird pattern. She's not always the best at being parental or maternal or showing up in a way that actually works, but she's much better. She's much better now. We've gone on a long process.
0: You mentioned something, Lisa, uh, about emotions and sort of stifling them. Jen, did you have that growing up as well? I think that that was part of the indoctrination
2: process because there were appropriate emotions to show. So happiness and joy kind of showed that you were like in alignment with God or in alignment with the truth. And anything that was negative <laughs> was, <laughs> at least like, sorry, negative. I haven't heard those Hexingles. words in a long time. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm going to trigger <laughs> no, this. No, shit no, it's out good, of you. It's good. Any kind of negative emotion, any kind of doubt was of Satan, or you were creating a foundation for Satan and evil spirit world to invade. And so the only way to like cut that off is to basically rebrainwash yourself with moon's teeth. Teachings, or go to a workshop or something like that. So it was always like a go back into the indoctrination. My mother didn't leave me in the same way. Although I think that even kids who didn't experience the abandonment of several years at Jacob's house or other similar nurseries still have abandonment issues because just the way that cults Work is that they break attachment bonds and they create very disorganized attachment. But my mother told me at a very young age when I was, you know, misbehaving, I was probably just asserting myself like a normal child would, because that's part of development and creating boundaries. She told me. That parents were so shocked to learn that their children were not going to be perfect because apparently, at some point, Moon had made them believe that blessed children would be born perfect because we were supposed to be the first people born without original sin, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And my mother was like, Some parents believed that meant their children wouldn't cry as infants. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> face palm. And so, I think that not only was there that repression of emotion, but there was a lot of that repression of self because the church theology believes that there's the formation stage, the growth stage, and the completion or perfection stage. So we're all supposed to be growing towards perfection. But again, you are also supposed to be born perfect too, but perfect is a moving target and everybody's got their own definition. And moon was always changing what you were supposed to be working towards anyway. So it's this consistent treadmill And it's very confusing, especially as a young child. When you're growing up, you're not allowed to feel your emotions. And then you're being taught to repress your identity in order to match the expectations of all of these different people that are not all the same. Because all of us in normal development, we get socialized by the people we grow up around. So if people are reflecting back on us like this behavior isn't appropriate, we're going to learn that. But if person A is giving you something, person B is giving you something else, And person C is giving you something else. You totally shut down because you're like, this is completely unsafe. And I don't know how to move through the world in a safe way. So that's the long answer. The short answer is yes, absolutely. (laughs) I completely
0: back up everything that Lisa is saying. Lisa, did you have anything to tag onto that? Yes.
1: Just a lot of yes. It reminds me of, so they controlled your emotions. They controlled your thinking, right? They controlled your behavior right? It's the bite model, behavior, information, thinking, and emotions, right? And they controlled all of it. It's brilliant indoctrination. There was like no way out. Cause as soon as you started to go out, you knew that there was something wrong with you and God could see that there was something wrong with you. You couldn't ever break the cycle. And many blessed children, true second gens knew that it wasn't true. And then eventually left. And I had the wonderful experience of still knowing it was true, but choosing to leave anyway. So that was another hard way to go through it because therefore I knew that I was all these evil things that they had always said that I was. It's just brilliant when you look at how they actually work to control us and keep us in that space, right? And again, my mom still thinks that she was led by the God or something to be there
0: is just fascinating. Just yesterday, I interviewed somebody who is an expert on reptilian overlords and the Sherry Schreiner cult. I don't know if you guys know anything about that one. It's a doozy. And I've been watching a lot of the Scientology stuff. And I think as somebody who's not a part of it, you know, you can very easily say looking at the TV, these people are dumb. How could they believe this? When you dig into these cults, it's a slow process over time of teaching you that this is wrong and this is right and this is wrong. And that doesn't mean that that person is dumb. It means that they just were more susceptible to, what would you say? Uh, Everybody is susceptible to. Everybody is susceptible. It's situational. Really, depending on where you are emotionally in your life, anybody could be sucked in.
2: Yeah. Based on the research, there's no psychological profile for people who are more susceptible to cults. It's all situational. If you are going through a divorce, if you're going through job loss, if you're going through anything that shakes your sense of identity or you're going through a developmental phase uh, or you're cut off from people that create support network, you are susceptible to narcissistic abuse and coercive control.
1: I was doing a, a podcast with a person who was running ICSA, which is the International Cultic Studies Association or the Organization for Cult Survivors. And I he corrected me and said, as long as you're not a sociopath or true right, right. psychosis or already in... Something you're, Because what this is what I say, as human animals, we crave certainty, purpose, and community. And a cult gives you absolute certainty. It is the most intoxicating drug ever to know that you have the truth and that you have the Messiah. It is the most powerful thing I've ever experienced. It's a lie. It's the most powerful thing I've ever experienced, <laughs> right? Purpose beyond belief. You don't go like, why am I here? You don't have Sunday night blues. You know why you're there. And a community you will never replicate because you're all bound in this really together, right? And so... I watched The Vow with my husband and he was like, that's stupid. Nobody would believe that. But if you watch it, you can really see how they indoctrinate you bit by bit, one step by another, and our brains are wired to think we're not crazy. So if I say, okay, I can believe that the scarves mean that I've actually done something more powerful than the next thing I know, then I believe it. It's this very circular way our brain works and they just work with it perfectly to have you... Leaving your kids, something you would never do, except the Messiah told you to. So you have to, and you're sinful if you don't want to. And so, yeah, we are all susceptible at the wrong moment, at the wrong time, in the wrong place.
2: I was just going to say, and the thing that you and I often say is nobody joins a cult. You join a front group, you join a band, you join a self-improvement group, you join in Berkeley, the Unification Church front group was the creative community project. And they were like, we do community gardens and you should come up to see our ideal city project. And like, we're so progressive. And then they'd bring people to this indoctrination camp for a weekend and then try to get them to stay for another week and another week and another week. And my mother didn't hear about Reverend Moon being the Messiah until the end of a 21 day workshop, it takes three days to rewire your brain and indoctrinate somebody. So imagine seven times that. So nobody goes into a cult knowing everything that they will be abused with, knowing everything that they will believe. Like Lisa said, it is a slow burn. And oftentimes, the way that at least in the unification church, they break you. And I I watched the vow and I watched seduced as well. Yep. The way that they break somebody is by teaching them that their old self, their old life is bad. Many of these places, they create a psychotic break in somebody. And instead of offering them therapy, they offer them the cult as the solution. There's an excerpt from the book Moonwebs by Josh Freed, and he talks about that process. He talked to Dr. Margaret Singer, who has done a lot of research with Robert J. Lifton about how this was done in prisoner of war camps, specifically in North Korea. And Moon used a lot of those techniques from North Korean labor camps, imported them into the way that they indoctrinated the Unification Church, But it's replicated in most cultic situations. Yeah. And so
1: many of them, like there's a front group or, you know, Moon's ideals, one family under God, no difference between nationality and races, kingdom of heaven on earth, everyone happy and living in beauty. It's a beautiful ideal, right? And so people sign on to the ideal. I don't think I was ever told Moon was the messiah. When I was there, it was like you go through the lectures and at the last lecture, they're like, well, the the Messiah came, He came between 1920 and 1930. He is a he and it had to be Korea. And they show you why it's a providential nation
2: and all that. There's a whole lecture. So in the indoctrination process with the Unification Church, there is the parallels of history. And so they show based on timelines that are historically inaccurate, how the Bible (laughs) breaks down with like this numerology. And so it's trying to like show that like God works in number systems and it's like this intricate chess game with Satan. And God has to achieve these various numbers and these various conditions in order for his providence to move forward. And so they're leading people by planting this information. And then by the end, you're right. They're like, and so we know based on the parallels of history lecture, that the Messiah has to be on earth now. He has to have been born between this state and this state. It had to have been in Korea based on X, Y, and Z. And so people who have also been hearing Moon's name dropped as like this you know, wise man throughout the various lectures, they're the ones that are supposed to put it together. And then if they come to a member and are like, wait, is Reverend Moon the Messiah? They'll be like, you need to go pray about it. But these people have already been pickled and carved to such a point that like, of course, they're going to make that connection because again, they were like being led to that point, but because they were being led, it was their revelation. Nobody told it to them. They realized it. And therefore it's that much more personalized. I just have to say,
1: Ben, like I started leaving in mid eighties, something like that, right? Whatever, however you look at it, when Jen says all these negative things about the church or about Moon, my brain shuts down. Still, I can handle it better. I used to never be able to speak negatively about Moon. Like I literally would not be able to talk. It's like my brain is terrified to defame him. And like when they first said it was a sex cult, I'm like, no, no, no. Like I can go through it now, but I can feel my whole being just not being able to take in what Jen is saying. I know the divine principle and Moon is not the Messiah. I know it's not true, but it's so deeply ingrained in me for all the reasons that I can still feel my whole being have a hard time accepting the negative.
2: I'm just Satan right now, Lisa. I'm trying <laughs> to influence you. Uh, no, have you Have you read Terror Love and Brainwashing by Alexandra Stein? Not yet. I think that you should because what she posits is that cults and attachment theory are interesting to study together. Basically what it's saying is that within a cult, they have these terror techniques that are used to scare the shit out of you, but the only safe place that they set up to run is the cult itself. And so it creates that closed system that Dr. yanyalalich talks about, and it also sets up that dissociation, right? Because if the only safe place to run is the source of your terror, your brain can't handle it and shuts down. And therefore, it is very hard for the cult member to see the problems within their cult and to see what's actually happening. The information and the whole system is weaponized against you. So it totally makes sense that that's your reaction. Yep. When I was 15, I
1: was in Seattle witnessing. I spent the summer proselytizing in Seattle. And I remember I met a woman who was a Mormon. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you're in such a messed up religion and a cult, like, oh my God, oh my God. (laughs) Exactly right. <laughs> but I wasn't in a cult. I was in truth. When you're in a cult, you never join a cult. And when you're in a cult, you're not in a cult.
0: I do see that a lot with people who are ex-Scientologists or ex-recently Yogi Bhajan followers. That's a big thing that's happening right now. Bikram, Bhajan, pretty much all the big yogis are we've uncovered have been doing similar things, pulling the children away from their moms, raping people, just all kinds of horrible things. and. I hear the same thing over and over again, even though I know he's fucked up and it's almost always a he, even though I know he's fucked up, I still feel weird hearing people talk badly about him. I still feel weird hearing people talk badly about what he taught. It's not just like, oh, good thing I got away. It's like, no, I got away. And now this is my new life, which is unraveling that which I may be doing until I die.
2: There's a couple of things in that. There's euphoric recall, which is like, I think our brain's way of protecting ourselves, right? So we remember the good stuff and we've dissociated around the bad stuff. We've blocked it out because that's how we survive in these situations. But I think it's also very similar to on a societal level, we have a really hard time separating the Harvey Weinsteins and the Woody Allens from their crimes, right? And, and that's a larger conversation that we have to have, because if somebody got something good out of Bikram Yoga, but at the same time, like the whole system was engineered around a narcissist so that he could exploit people sexually, then we do have to unravel that and be like, wait a minute. And in the, the case of like Bikram Yoga, like he did steal, most of his teachings. They've uncovered that too. Moon stole most of his teachings as well. The divine principle was not written by him. And it's also like an amalgamation of all kinds of other religions. So I think that there's a lot there that it's very hard on an individual level to unpack, right? Mm -hmm. If you're learning from somebody who's abusive, but he's taken a doctrine that might have value, of course, it's going to be really hard to hold these two repetitive truths in your brain is going to create that cognitive dissonance. But again, if somebody is stealing something that's actually valuable and then using it as a weapon against people, of course, it's going to be really, really hard for people to separate that out. And there's
1: also like so much duality in everything, right? I do have a book, right? To the Moon and Back, didn't mention it before, right? And people read it and they're like, well, you don't make the church sound that bad. And I'm like, well, first of all, I could only give you my experience. Second of all, it is. (laughs) But third of all, it also was a haven. It was a safer place than where I was before or where I was on the outside. I did grow up with blessed children, right? And I mean, I'm talking to one of them and she's like, I know all of this to be true. And I also know that it also gave me a life and protected me or any blessed child. Many of them I've talked to talk about. But if it wasn't for the church, I wouldn't actually physically be here, right? Then your brain has to hold all these dualities of like, how can I know that it's evil? I was taught never to see that. But if I'm seeing that it's evil, it wasn't good, but it had some good that I got out of it or some way helped me or created me or saved
0: me. It's very wonky. Oh, You brought up, Jen, Harvey Weinstein and Woody Allen. That brings me to an important question I wanted to ask you. A lot of times there's this question after we find out about these idolized people like Bikram and Woody Allen and Michael Jackson. and Do we continue to listen to Michael Jackson's music? Do we continue to watch Woody Allen's films? Do we continue to participate in these practices within the framework of the Moonies? Were there any practices that you still participate in now? I mean,
2: I think that the sense of spirituality, that aspect of your life, that's something that I still carry with me. But I also separate spirituality from religiosity. I think that they're two different things. And I think that it's important to express them as distinct things. So the answer is yes and no in that regard.
0: So specific practices?
2: Specific practices, no. Lisa?
1: So first of all, it's funny because actually just today I was thinking of a scene from Annie Hall, you know, right? And and then being like, am I allowed to like Annie Hall anymore? I was literally having this, you know, cognitive conversation <laughs> this, at some point today, like, oh man, am I forgiving? I can't like, so it's a hard one to hold, right? So I would agree that I happily practice no specific religion, but I am very spiritual. And when I left, I stopped all that because if I thought of I thought of God. If I thought of God, it was the God of my cult. If I thought of God of my cult, I needed to die for what I'd done, right? Blah, 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 blah. It's like a very slippery, easy slope. And then when I started into recovery and healing and kind of looking at it, I do have a huge sense of spirituality, which is like the core of my being. And my God, God X, they, them pronouns is love, right? And so that's the way I look at it. I, I am all about love. I took a course in positive psychology and they nicknamed me love and body. Like I do say my God is love and life's purposes to love. And you, you could say that I kind of got that in the church because supposedly it's about love. And when I could be helpful in no other way, I made the decision that I would love and adore my brothers and sisters so much and made their hard lives easier. But I like to separate it. I think that what the church talks about love is not actually love so I'm going to go a total yes on what Jen said. Religiosity, absolutely not. Structure and rules, my brain is addicted to them. And every day I try and put them down. But spirituality and believing in an essence a being a sense, but I don't use the word God very often. And when I do, it's a little G intentionally. Like I do all these things to kind of push it away. But the actual practices, hell no. I can't think of one I'd want.
0: <laughs> and could you tell me a little bit about the practices? I mean, were there personal practices that were maybe similar to meditating every day or prayers or certain things that you had to do on a daily basis?
2: Yeah. In our family, and I know not every family was this way. Mine was very fundamentalist. We had morning service every day. So we'd wake up and be in our prayer room, which was a designated space in the house. Uh, We would bow at the door, half bow, go into the room, full bow, to the altar, which had a picture of Reverend Moon and Mrs. Moon. Yes, Kyungdae. And it was what? Right hand over left hand? That's like the yeah. specific correct yeah. way to do it. On
0: your forehead?
2: Um, yeah, all the way on your forehead but not uh-huh. too high in the air because that's disrespectful to spirit world. So bow yeah. to the altar with Moon and, and Mrs. Moon. And we actually had a picture of their deceased son, Hungjin mm-hmm. on the, the altar as well. You open with holy songs to prepare the spiritual atmosphere. It was always better if they were in Korea because Korean was the language of heaven. And so therefore heavenly spirit world would attend more readily. And then you open with your prayer and then you read Moon's words for 45 minutes or an hour. And then Sundays you get up even earlier and you do pledge, which is where you pledge in English and Korean to basically dedicate your life to God and true parents, which are Moon and Mrs. Moon. And when I was growing up, the language was very militarized. So I will fight with my life. This I pledge Um, and swear. Like I will die for you, Reverend Moon, kind of a thing. And so, yeah, I mean, that was a daily thing for us in my family.
1: You know, you made me realize that there is one practice. So some of the songs, I have gone back to church services and I've gone back to things. It's like so weird. You know the songs and I know the pledge. Like it's deeply, deeply, I will fight with my life. I will, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'm not going to say it. But then there are songs I used to, when my mom first left and I was shopping and cooking and cleaning and running the house at the age of 11 for my grandfather and my brother. And I used to walk to school and I used to sing, I'll never leave you anymore. Oh God. Which is Belvedere
2: song, right?
1: There you go. Right. And it still can go through my head now. Yeah. But so what I I do is I take (laughs) it and I, right. And I take it and I, I turn the meaning around towards myself Mm, right so that okay. I reclaim it and reown it so Jen's not as nauseated by what I'm saying but it's still like I hear the words or I hear the music and I feel the feeling and it's like yeah, because music yeah. is another way to indoctrinate it's absolutely, oh, absolutely. a way to indoctrinate yeah. right and our songs were about marching on heavenly soldiers yeah, yeah.
2: the neurology of it especially in group settings is that it creates a euphoria It's almost like bringing you to a heightened state. And so that's part of how you induce spiritual experiences. And the evangelical church does that too, like with a lot of their revivals and things like that. I'm really looking forward to Alice Gretchen's presentation at the conference on religious trauma, because that's exactly what she's talking about. Um, Like what is the research around our neurobiology that induces that spiritual experience and chanting and singing is part of it. And so
1: I don't pray anymore. I meditate a lot, but it was very hard to get into any of that because it's hard to separate what I really want and what I really believe and what really works for me versus what I was taught. It's
0: hard. Yeah, I can imagine the process of reclaiming, especially mantras and music. Like you said, that stays in your brain forever. It has the ability to put you in a trance like no other method you know, I saw Jen, you were kind of like, "Uh, get out of my head. <laughs> what do you do, Jen, specifically, because you seemed so taken aback by that? What do you do oh. when, when you hear that song or if it does come up somewhere, you have a dream about it or something? How do you react? Do you have to kind of like recollect yourself?
2: Luckily, I haven't had dreams about it. So <laughs> the last time I was really, really triggered by a holy song it was actually at my mother's funeral. They sang Grace of the Holy Garden. And I call that the brainwashing song because Mm. Mm. it's the song that they sing at one of the indoctrination centers in Korea, in Chungpyeong, And you have to sit for like over an hour and a half hitting yourself in various places to get out evil spirits. And so there's somebody on a traditional drum keeping a beat, right? And then there's somebody else that's telling you where to hit. It is such a indoctrination process, right? And I only did it once. We were all supposed to go to Korea to do it. And I never did. I always thought it was kind of crazy and creepy, but one time they did it locally to where I was living and my mother made me go. Um, So anyway, when they sang that at the funeral, I started laugh crying because I was like, oh my God, it's the brainwashing song. And my best friend who is not a church member who had driven out to the funeral, she like takes my head and hides it in her lap because she's like, okay, this is laughing at a funeral and this is not appropriate. But I was just so triggered. I didn't know what to do with it. But if it comes up in my brain now, I usually tend to like, turn on the radio or something else to kind of just distract me, drown it out or like sing along to a song that I actually enjoy because yeah, it it is so deeply embedded into our psyche. Some of the songs were used to create again, that sense of connection and fellowship, but some of them were used to abuse us too. And so there's even like that Hoobastank song. What is it called? (laughs) The Reason? They played that over and over and over at a workshop with a slideshow of Reverend Moon photos and we had to like hold our hands up in the air for this really, really long time while it played over and over again in the dark with this slideshow going on after, you know, time lost its meaning, et cetera, et cetera. I was just bawling, like tears just pouring down my face because something in me snapped. So I can't listen to that song anymore. So if that ever comes on, I have to like leave the room, go somewhere else, engage in something else because it will induce a panic attack
1: when the book came out, I was on the Making Kelly show and the producer did for the, the backstory. He said, were you brainwashed? And that's when I said, I didn't have a brain to be washed. I was pickled. I firmly believe that those of us who our brains were forming and they were contained in, in this liquid, right? And really not allowed to form. Of course, I'm still triggered by that. Like I really wish I wasn't, but of course it's deeply in me. And so how to, how to soothe myself, how to let it be okay that I am how to listen to something else, how to get the hell out of the room, like all those things. Because years ago, my mom used to say, I really hope you get over the fact that I left you. And you're like, what? Right. I'm totally over it, but it will always be, I will always have these triggers that sometimes hit me in different ways. It was something I reached out to you the other day, Jen, and I said something you came back with like an, as the, you know, the former cult kid or whatever that I am, I'm like, let me never forget that I have that legacy. And so Of course, I respond to different things, different than people who didn't have this happen to them, who weren't intentionally abused in this way. And so it's this huge compassion that I may be triggered to the day I die. Right. And that's fine.
2: What an uneducated, rude question to ask. Were you brainwashed? Like, obviously, you don't understand anything about cult indoctrination. Otherwise, you wouldn't be asking that question.
0: I want the listeners to understand who Mr. and Mrs. Mooney are. Sure,
2: sure. So Reverend Moon was born in the 1920s in what is now North Korea. And so Christian missionaries came to Korea and they proselytized. So I think at about eight years old, his family converted from what I believe might've been Confucianism to Christianity, but Korea is also a very shamanistic country as well. And so I think in many areas where missionaries have come in, the religion is somewhat of a goulash, right? So like Catholicism in different countries manifests in different ways. And so in Korea, you had a lot of different interesting manifestations of Christianity. And so the mythology is that Moon was praying on a mountaintop at Easter. Korea was under Japanese occupation at the time. So I think he was praying for the liberation of Korea or whatever. And Jesus came to him in a vision and said, my mission was not to die on the cross. It was actually to get married and have a family and restore the lineage of God. And so he said to Moon, you need to take up my mantle and my mission and be the second coming. And supposedly Moon said, no, twice, but the third time that Jesus asked, Moon said, okay, fine. And then he did all kinds of battle in spirit world to uh, receive the divine principle, which is the theological text. And so it's sort of like, again, in the mythology, this sort of like what dreams may come mission where he's traveling through spirit world to battle Satan and evil spirits to understand. (laughs) Right. And so (laughs) I'm shaking uh, my head here. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing also at the eye rolls. The more correct history is that I think that Moon got involved in a number of Christian-based cults that also meshed against shamanism. So there was one that he was involved with called Inside the Belly Church, and so this was a female leader whose belly would actually move. I think they believed that she might actually give birth to the second coming of Christ. And he participated in a number of groups that did group sex as part of a religious rite. And so in those cases, the leader who is either in the position of a priest or a priestess, would act as the God figure and then have sex with the followers as a kind of womb cleansing. And so Moon was arrested multiple times. The church says it was because people got negative against him preaching the truth, but really it was because he was practicing group sex, even in the early days of his church. So he was married, I believe, twice before Mrs. Moon came on the scene. And there's all kinds of really interesting drama around that. But Basically, he abandoned his first wife. I think he divorced his second wife. I might be getting that mistaken. And and then he tried to marry another woman because she came from a very rich family. And so that family could have financed his entire religious operation, but somehow it didn't end up working out. And I think that the reason was because this woman knew her own mind a little too much. So Moon decided that his perfect bride was going to have to be a younger, more pliable woman. So he married Hakshahan when he was in his 40s and she was, I think, 16. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was the daughter of his cook. And from what I understand he severely abused her. He put her through what was called like the seven-year course, but I believe that it was like he locked her in a house for several years, kept her pregnant all the time, living in poverty kind of thing. So he essentially like, broke this woman but now she runs like the main branch of the church because it's split into all kinds of different factions so she's sort of like the abused woman who has become like the mafia boss trying to keep the crime family together is there anything that you want to add to that lisa <laughs> that
1: was beautifully done be, and, I, and, like,
2: and the first time you hear this your brain goes wah, 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 yeah
1: wah, yeah. Wah. yeah and then you you get a little bit more used it when you hear it but
0: yeah yeah you did a great job breaking that down i second that so mrs moon is still currently living Yep, she's still alive.
2: She owns a lot of the property. So the church, I believe that it's accurate to say is a multi-billion dollar organization with all kinds of different front groups. There are uh, cult researchers who do keep tabs on all of the various businesses and fronts that the Unification Church has. So she controls the main part of the assets and probably the membership too. So she's got all the palaces in Korea and everything. Her eldest living son has a different faction. And then the youngest son has the gun church, the sanctuary church. Mm, dear? The
1: once you brought the, yeah, the AR-15s yeah. to a wedding ceremony and were very yeah. highly publicized. As I like to say, the people who are in that faction are being taught to literally kill. And if and when Sean Moon, who is the youngest son with all their English names, were to say
2: kill, they would kill. Juicy tidbit, a follower of the Sanctuary Church was recently arrested for domestic terrorism in Dobbs Ferry because he ran his vehicle into an MTA vehicle, got out, started screaming at public servants, you know, I am Jesus, be prepared to die. And authorities found a kill list in his van.
0: Damn. Mm -hmm. So you said the Sanctuary Church just now, and then before you said the Unification Church. So for people who don't understand, explain to me what the Sanctuary Church is, what the Unification Church is. I know you said there's factions, but which one's the OG
2: So OG is the Unification Church, and when Moon was in his final years, some say that he was suffering from Alzheimer's, and then, you know, you layer on narcissism and and megalomania, uh, his favorite child and his successor was always changing. So supposedly, he crowned Sean Moon, his youngest son, three times as his successor, but then he also named other people as his successor, too. So Sean Moon, after the death of his father in 2012, broke off from his mother and his older brother and created the Sanctuary Church, which that is not like the correct term, but that's sort of like the shorthand. And so that is the gun church offshoot. There's
1: Hyungjin, there's Hyunjin, and there's Hyungjin. There's three uh, of them, if I remember, uh, <laughs> right? And one's
2: dead, right? That's um, Hyunjin, Yeah. Right. So what H H one and H two is what we call them. H one and H two each run separate factions. H two runs Sanctuary Church, which is the gun faction. Right. Jahan runs the OG.
0: Okay.
1: Right. One is like the used to be the Family Federation of Peace, and the other was the world. They keep changing
0: yeah, the names. Yeah, they they yes, really do. they, they yeah. rebrand a lot. Well, it's smart. Scientology does that. I mean, Osho did that. Osho also had a gun faction, which is a strange thing that happens in cults. They get progressively more violent. Um, I want to go back to Mrs. Moon, who I feel bad for, but also she seems to be perpetuating it. I still feel bad for her because I think she's just pickled and carved. I think that's the mantra of this episode. I think that what
2: you've just identified is like one of the really difficult things for anybody that has grown up in this because cults perpetuate narcissistic abuse. And then the people who have been abused become the abusers. And so where do you draw the line between abuser, abusee, you know?
0: Totally. How many children do you think she had
2: I think she had 15 or there, like 13 living or something like that. There were many babies, many babies. Yeah,
0: I think
1: it's 15 and maybe 12 are living or something.
2: I want to second that abuse or abuse
1: because I'm um, and I don't say this often and we don't need to go into it, but like it's very hard to separate that, right? So, so the true children, Moon's children. I am one of the few people who have some sympathy and compassion for them because in the second gen group, because one, I did not suffer really at their abuse. And two, I saw the abuse they received. So it's a very hard line to figure out. Again, that duality yeah. thing for me, like I do have compassion for her, but abusers do abuse. So how do you pull that apart? <clears throat>
2: right? Yeah. right. Supposedly Hak Jahan would like have her children fight each other and stuff. There are stories of like really sick, fucked up stuff. But again, the way that she was abused was pretty horrible too. And then if we look at Hyojin, the eldest son who died of a heart attack from cocaine, it is rumored that He was raped by Peter Kim, who was one of the top leaders because, A, I guess the guy was a pedophile, but also there may have been female members who raped him as well because of the whole like womb cleansing thing. So if they couldn't sleep with Moon, they would try to sleep with his children. So horrible, horrible abuse, if that's true. And yet, if you read the book In the Shadow of the Moons, written by his ex-wife, The abuse that she suffered from him is horrible. It is just the most harrowing tale of domestic abuse and then also cultic abuse layered on top of it. And so it's like, oh my God, this poor young man who must have suffered horribly and oh my God, he became a monster. And so again, yeah, duality. And so in that sense, it's like, I have sympathy for the young child that suffered, but I cannot have sympathy for the abuser. And many of them became abusers.
1: Yeah, I absolutely, yes, absolutely agree with all of that. What I try to explain is they were revered. They had Mm. no rules. Like we could do anything when we were with them. Like throw rocks at members, the members would thank you. Lock them in cars in the trunk and drive them around, the members would think. Like total, no rules, no structure whatsoever. And at the same time, completely washed and judged for everything they did right? And then with the the abuse that they suffered and all of that, it's like, again, doesn't forgive their adult behavior, but that poor brain psyche person was so, it's very hard. As I like to say, all of them are either like dead, OD'd, abusing, like they're all messed up in so many ways because they're, again, doesn't forgive their adult behavior, but their childhoods were just, there was no way they could grow up. Okay. Right. There's no way they could grow up. Okay. So it's, it's how do you, again, hold those dualities.
0: Wow. All of the conversations that I have with guests on Follow the Woo are incredibly thought-provoking. And some also inadvertently help me work through stuff I'm processing. For instance, this conversation was so charged that it reminded me of something I want to share with you. In 2020, I found out that Yogi Bhajan, the leader of what we know as Kundalini Yoga in the West, was a really, really bad dude. He's not alive, so he can't be investigated in person, but an official private investigation firm released a report about him that concluded he was most likely a manipulative, abusive, toxic dude to many, many, many of his students. At around the same time, some direct students of Yogi Bhajan came forward and told their harrowing stories regarding his behavior. After doing my own epic amount of research on him, I found out that he was not only a despicable human, but also most of what he taught was just made up. This was a practice that I thought had saved me in a way. I had a picture of Yogi Bhajan in my wallet. My teacher, unfortunately, was one of the few kundalini teachers in the world who ignored the reports from the victims and ignored the investigative report. So I had to do what was right and cut myself off from my teacher, my practices, and my community. That broke my heart, and I felt so confused and lost and hurt that my teacher, who I tuned into every day, was siding with an abuser. Not to mention, what were all those movements I was practicing every day? Were they just made up? And I only did kundalini yoga consistently like that for a little over a year, but my whole world felt upside down for a few months. It felt like I was having a spiritual crisis, and that was nothing compared to what Jen and Lisa experienced. I can't even imagine what it must have felt like for them to leave their church, their practices, their Messiah, their family members after many, many years, and after growing up in that community. Jen and Lisa are incredibly powerful, compassionate, and brave women. They have learned and continue to learn to own their personal power and to trust their intuitive nature. The most important lesson that I learned after the kundalini debacle is no more guru. No more guru. And I'm using the word guru as an umbrella term that includes messiahs, masters, demigods, descendants from God, all-knowing seers, and even teachers in some cases. Basically, any human being who is acting as the all-knowing being, yes, they have all the answers that you should follow. That's a hard, hard nope. It's the old way. We have the answers within. And I'm not saying we should never get guidance from teachers and shamans and psychics and other mystics. I will do that forever. But we have to be wary and cautious of people, churches, and or spiritual communities who tell us that they have all of the answers and who want us to join something that will help us ascend in some way. Lisa and Jen have reminded me how imperative it is to cultivate a deep trust within ourselves. Okay, that's my public service announcement. No more guru. You can purchase Lisa's book, To the Moon and Back, A Child Under the Influence, on her website, lisacohnewrites.com, or on Amazon. You can check out and also purchase some of Jen's amazing art prints on her website, jenkiaba.com. Per usual, those links and more will be available to you in the show notes for this episode. And remember to tune in next week for part two of this interview. All right. Till next time, y'all. Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a Woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, follow the woo.